This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, it's time to disarm the police. That's what Don Guttenplan says. He's editor of The Nation. And Ella Taylor will be back with Virus Time TV recommendations. First up, fascism comes to Portland. For that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, just to summarize what we've seen in Portland in the last week, we've seen an aggressive federal campaign to suppress protests with anonymous federal agents wearing camouflage, sweeping through the streets, flooding the streets with tear gas, shooting projectiles from paintball guns at protesters, grabbing activists, detaining them in unmarked vans, and all this over the objections of the state and local officials. And Trump now talks about doing the same thing in Chicago, New York, Detroit, Baltimore, and other cities. He points out that all of these places are run by Democrats. Does this look like a Trump re-election campaign strategy to you? Totally. I mean, as Trump sinks in the polls, I think his last ploy, at least, you know, for now, appears to be conveying the sense uh, that America has uh, embarked upon a civil war and he will lead the forces of truth and injustice uh, or, or whatever. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I mean, it, it, there's a whole right-wing media ecosystem which is essential to this. They, they need to depict cities as, as what they are not, uh, which is to say as, uh, you know, disaster areas going up in flames, which they are not. I believe the phrase you're looking for is engulfed in chaos. I knew I was looking for something. Uh, <laughs> yes, engulfed in chaos, uh, requiring the intervention uh, of, of President Trump. It, it is entirely a re-election ploy, though it also uh, is, is an expression of the authoritarian nature of Trump. But remember, in his acceptance speech at the 2016 Republican convention, the only line from that speech, which really uh, is going to resonate historically, is, I alone can fix it. And th this is his, you know, having utterly failed to do uh, anything about what really is afflicting the United States, which is to say the coronavirus and endemic racism, Trump gins up uh, a faux crisis, a false crisis, uh, and then can claim, I alone can fix it. So, you know, I mean, we were warned, uh, as it were, in 2016, and now he is rather desperately grasping for something that he can claim to have fixed. And while the federal agents in the streets of Portland are, uh, do not care, wear any identifying badges or markings, we are told that they are mostly Border Patrol agents. And there's something particularly scary about using Border Patrol agents in American cities against protesters. Michelle Goldberg wrote her New York Times column uh, about this on, on Tuesday. Trump uh, has tried to get the military to do his bidding, but they have resisted. They don't want to engage American citizens in the streets of our cities. Uh, the Border Patrol, on the other hand, is 
directly under you know, the executive uh, authority of the president, their leadership is fanatically devoted to Trump. And they're basically have been a right wing force for, <clears throat> you know, at least a decade now. And they're very much used to acting without regard for due process or constitutional uh, rights. Uh, they've been doing that for more than a decade against undocumented immigrants and refugees. The only thing that's different is bringing them into the center, into the streets of the center cities to treat uh, young white people the same way that they've been treating undocumented refugees for a long time. Young white people and young black people and white and black and brown and otherwise people of all ages, yes. Yeah. Well, they warmed up, as it were, on uh, uh, people at the border. Not all of them undocumented immigrants. Once you start swinging your club or whatever, uh, you know, you, you uh, could quite likely be hitting just about anybody. Uh, the, the, I saw an artwork online today for which the caption was, when you wear riot gear, everything looks like a riot. Uh, which I think is a pretty good expression of uh, what's going on. But, you know, the border, the, the border Patrol is under the jurisdiction of the Department of Homeland Security, which, to put it mildly, but by virtue of its very name, doesn't have the uh, tradition of the U.S. military of, relatively speaking, staying out of, of domestic, uh, domestic politics. And so my, my colleague at the Prospect, uh, Alex Salmon, uh, has has noted that um, if and when uh, the Democrats sweep in November and Biden is president, one of the things they need to do is really dismantle um, much of the Department of Homeland Security, which is actually a legacy of George W. Bush uh, that Trump simply inherited and is running amok with. So uh, I think that's got to be on the to-do list of a, a democratic successor government. I wanted to ask your response to the column in the New York Times by the award-winning columnist, Tom Friedman, who's actually from my hometown of I know Minneapolis. That, yes. He's worried about Portland. And in his column on Wednesday, he declares, quote, when I heard Trump suggest, as he did in the Oval Office on Monday, that he was going to send federal forces into U.S. cities where the local mayors had not invited him, the first word that popped into my head was Syria. Harold, I wondered if Syria was the first thing that popped into your head. No, but I mean, in, in Tom Friedman's defense, he, you know, spent much of his life as a Middle Eastern correspondent. So he's, he's entitled to say Syria. But I mean, in, in general, uh, this is a tactic of authoritarian regimes, of which Syria under Assad certainly is one. Uh, and, you know, I mean, to the extent that Trump has a foreign policy, it's sort of his personal uh, empathy for uh, thuggish governments and, and thuggish leaders uh, all across the world. And when, when people ask, what would so-and-so do? I, I, I'm afraid, you know, when, when Trump thinks about that, it, it's like, what would Putin do? Or what would President Xi of China do? Or what would uh, Assad of Syria do? Uh, his idea of leadership is displays of, uh, of brute force. That, that's the only kind of leadership he actually understands. Well, I wonder whether, whether Trump's 
plan for winning the election around this kind of fascist intensification of a law and order theme will work in the present context. It seems to me the things you've pointed to, the pandemic and the economy, are immensely more potent political issues for virtually every American more than, you know, the kids fighting in the streets of Portland in the middle of the night. They are, and what it reflects is the strategic bankruptcy of, uh, of, of the Trump campaign. I mean, he's waging the kind of campaign that, let's say, Richard Nixon, you know, alluded to without doing uh, in 1968. I'm the law and order candidate. I will restore the disorder in cities. Now, in 1968, uh, the, the nation had experienced the year previous uh, a, a couple major uh, urban uprising. It, it experienced a convulsion in cities after the assassination of Martin Luther King. And there was a, you know, a huge, what Nixon called silent majority, one component of which was white racism that was, uh, you know, fearful of this change. Now, Trump is kind of, I think, chronologically in his head stuck uh, in that paradigm, uh, but it's a very different nation from the nation it was 52 years ago. And all the polling uh, suggests that Americans, really a majority of Americans support uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Certainly a majority of Americans uh, disapprove of his handling of the pandemic. And all of this, uh, you know, leads to the fact that Joe Biden, uh, in uh, an average of the polls, leads Trump by, a, you know, a either high single or low uh, double digits uh, in the polls. So th this is really the last card, I think, that Trump has to play. I don't think it's going to be particularly effective, but, you know, it's, it, it, it's also, you know, for those who like sincerity in leaders, it is a genuine expression of, of what Trump is about. Well, Tom Friedman suggests that it's sort of our fault, or, or at least the fault of Black Lives Matter, uh, for, for, calling, for saying defund the police, that this is what is fueling you know, the potential for Trump winning with this kind of campaign. But do you really think you know, Black Lives Matter is going to get Trump reelected? You just said the, the polls show widespread support among white people for Black Lives Matter. Yeah, um, uh, I mean, so the short answer is no. I do not think Black Lives Matter is going to lead, lead us to a Trump victory. It is the case, if you look at polling, that people uh, support Black Lives Matter, support police reform, but a majority does not support defund the police, which is, as a slogan, sounds a lot more uh, sort of total and sweeping than any implementation of defunding the police uh, would actually be. Uh, and, you know, Joe Biden, who is, has not gotten to his uh, elevated position without having some sense of what plays politically and what does not, supports all, a, lot of, a, a whole lot of kinds of police reform but avoids defund the, the, the defunding issue uh, because he, he sensed even before the polls showed it uh, that this was uh, a bridge too far for a lot, of, uh, a lot of swing voters. And of course, there's one other possibility that most of what Trump is saying is empty talk. A lot of what he does is talk big and, that, and then not do anything. The news from Chicago on Wednesday 
is that the mayor says the Trump administration will not be deploying federal officers in the streets of the city in the style of Portland. This is Mayor Lori Lightfoot. She said on Tuesday that she's been working with the administration and that they will send people from the FBI and the DEA and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. She says, quote, we will receive resources that are going to plug into the existing federal agencies that we work with on a regular basis to help manage and suppress violent crime, unlike what happened in Portland. She said, we welcome actual partnership, close quote. So a partnership between Trump and Democratic mayors, that doesn't sound like the Trump that we know, but Trump said Chicago is next and... What do you make of the statement? Well, of- you know, uh, I mean, there, there, there's a conflation of two different things here. Uh, there uh, are uh, cities where there are still demonstrations, uh, and some of which, very small fraction of which, still result in in uh, encounters that are, are that are harsh. Uh, Portland is one of the few cities where that's still the case. Chicago doesn't have that at all. What Chicago has is simply uh, a continuation of high levels of, of crime uh, in, uh, in the south side of Chicago. I think ideally, Trump would like there to be more Portlands, uh, but there aren't. But, but also, this, this gives him a, an opportunity simply, you know, he, he, cities that have had an increase in crime during uh, the, the lockdowns, and a lot of them have it, think lockdowns tend to lead to more people going nuts. Uh, all of us are, to a certain degree. <laughs> to say that, you know, he's targeting Democratic-run cities, well, if, if you look at who the elected officials are in, let's say, the 100 largest American cities, they're almost all entirely Democrats because that's who city dwellers tend to elect. And so Trump, you know, is, is, is looking at a, a, a bank shot with about uh, 17 different banks <laughs> by which he can link Joe Biden to urban urban violence. And, you know, this, again, is part of the right-wing playbook of the 1960s. If a city in the 60s had urban uprisings, it was the fault of Democratic mayors who were in touch with, you know, Democratic leaders. And so, you know, uh, so, so, so Nixon could accuse someone like Hubert Humphrey of, of being a, a, a crazy radical, uh, which he was not. Uh, and Trump hopes he can accuse Joe Biden of, of being that as well, which is absurd. Let me just talk for one brief moment here about what's actually going on in Portland is mostly the thousands of demonstrators are completely peaceful. Right. Uh, families, you know, there's the famous Portland has had one innovation I haven't seen in a lifetime of demonstrations, the wall of moms. Right. The mothers wearing uh, yellow t-shirts and bicycle helmets and surgical masks uh, lining up, locking arms to face these unnamed federal camouflage guys to separate them from the more militant Antifa-style kids. They sing lullabies to try to calm down the federal forces. And then later in the evening, pretty much everybody goes home and a few hundred kids go downtown to the federal building and fight the police. 
the rest of Portland is not, you know, engulfed in chaos. The rest of Portland is mostly staying home and, you know, being uh, good citizens. And a few thousand of them go out and march uh, early, early in the evening. And that's what's really happening in Portland. Yeah, but here, here's, here's where, where Trump uh, has a force working in his favor. And it's, it's uh, the, the way the activities you just laid out get reported on, uh, on Fox News, on right-wing talk radio, on uh, right-wing websites. You know, they have concocted an entirely fictitious depiction of what's going on uh, in the country that provides the justification to those who are credulous enough to believe it. And, and that, that is to say, basically, the American right at this point uh, a justification for Trump doing what he's doing. So it's a, it's a fictitious portrayal of of this, which enables Trump to do something like what 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 he's what he's ordered in in Portland. Uh, the writer Anne Applebaum, writing uh, writing uh, who writes for the Atlantic, has called it performative authoritarianism, which I think is a good phrase. Performative authoritarianism, excellent. Yes, I mean it it, it reflects. The stage production that uh, that, that Fox uh, stages is responded to by the stage production that Trump uh, has has ordered. Uh, you know, it's 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 as it were a niche drama, but the niche is basically all of right wing America. So we always get to the question: What is to be done? These are attacks on democratic cities. The Democrats control the House of Representatives. The House controls the federal budget. Nancy Pelosi has tweeted, quote, Trump and his stormtroopers must be stopped. She hasn't said much specifically about how to do that, but the House could vote that it will hold up the Homeland Security Appropriations Bill until Trump's, you know, fascist uh, thugs leave Portland and pledge not to go into the other cities. How about that for a plan? I, I think it's a pretty good plan. They could indeed do it. I mean, part of, you know, part of Pelosi and the Democrats' calculation, part of every, every breath they take is, is calculated on how will this affect the November election. And if they think that uh, this will be uh, either helpful or neutral, I think they'll go ahead and do it. If they think it may cost them the support uh, of some potential Democratic votes, they may not. But as, as a policy, I think it's a great solution. Let's talk about the November election and, oh, and, <laughs> and the Biden campaign a little more. Um, of course, the strongest part of the Biden campaign is Donald Trump himself. But th- there's, there's still the open question of the vice presidential candidate. It's extremely rare that vice presidential candidates actually bring significant number of votes to the ticket. Is there any evidence that among the people Biden says he's considering that one would actually win votes that Biden would not otherwise get? Well, I think history is a good guide here in that, you know, I I think vice presidents, vice presidential candidates matter around the margins. That said, there's one uh, potential constituency where Biden has been weak from the outset, and that is young people uh, on the left, uh, most of whom will uh, reluctantly vote for Biden, but not all of them will. Now, if there's one candidate 
who might be able to help them a little with that. And there's a, a, one poll out that, that shows that this is the case. It's Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, who with Bernie Sanders was the left of the Democratic presidential field and who obviously is just a, a fount of progressive policy ideas. So there's some data out there that shows she would be helpful. Uh, other than that, uh, I don't think uh, any of the candidates really um, move the needle in any particular direction. But we hear every day that Biden should pick an African-American woman to be his running mate, and the leading candidate is Kamala Harris. Yes, uh, and, and there's certainly a logic to that, but, but uh, the polling also shows that among young African-Americans, uh, Warren is a more favored pick than Harris, who uh, really has a kind of indistinct ideological and political profile, and who as DA and then AG of San Francisco and California, respectively, uh, was in a prosecutorial position, uh, which, which wasn't all that simpatico with uh, the, the new emerging perspective on police reform and Black Lives Matter and what have you. And even before all that, when, at the early days of the primary campaign, she withdrew because she didn't have any support, even in her home state of California. No. Well, part, that's partly due to the political culture of California, where, where people have enough distractions so they don't really uh, follow uh, what uh, elected officials do. But uh, it, it's, it's, it's also because she's, as I said, kind of politically indistinct. Uh, you know, and in a sense, that's a virtue because, you know, that means somewhat like Biden, she can sort of, you know, take uh, positions that, that, that reflect wherever the Democrats are at at a given moment. But it's not a very impactful kind of stature, and the impact just isn't there. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org and at the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. Now something extra, Four Minutes with Naomi Klein. This is a brief excerpt from an online conversation for The Nation that she did recently with Katrina Vandenhuvel. Naomi, of course, is the activist and award-winning author most recently of On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. And this year, she's the inaugural Gloria Steinem Endowed Professor of Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies at Rutgers University. She was asked about the people refusing to wear masks and the movement demanding the reopening of businesses in America. That movement is a frightening one, and it isn't going away no matter what happens in November. And I think we, we need to be thinking really um, strategically and longer term about how we defang that movement and prevent a different candidate from running on the right who is more um, lucid, you know, like, I mean, I'm chilled to the bone at the idea of a Tucker Carlson run for president. I think that would be very scary. And I think if Biden blows it in his first term, um, we could be set up for a, a more effective fasc American fascism and white supremacy. So we need to be thinking very, very uh, uh, seriously about what, what Alicia was talking about. Um, and 
and in thinking about, you know, these, these types of policies and, and the urgency, right, for these kinds of big investments and really un, like trying to figure out what is the fuel that is feeding the fires of fascism? How, how do we dampen it? And how, and, and not, and I don't mean just like throwing money at it, like trying to deal with this sort of economic precarity. I think it, I think it's that his, that hard historical work. And I think that that is un, something that there was some hope that Obama would do that, right? When he delivered his, 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 what was called the race speech, right? After the Reverend Wright controversies. And he talked, he gave this incredible speech. It's really worth rewatching. And there was some hope that an Obama presidency would, 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 would lead a process of, of, of kind of truth and reconciliation um, and repair. Um, because that was, you know, uh, Desmond Tutu talks, who, who headed South Africa's Truth and, and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. He tried to get reparations in it and, and, and was not listened to and has deep critiques of, of, of the limits of just truth. So I just want to underline that. But that didn't happen, right? There was the, there was the race speech and then there was a period of kind of, of, of colorblind policies. I think it is so urgent that we use these, these years that we have now. And I think, I think we've got a couple of years where we are going to be moving slower as we try to dance with this virus, right? I think we should, we, I think, we should think of them as the years of repair. I, I think we should call them that. <laughs> um, maybe it's a good thing that we are being forced to slow down and do some work of repair. And so I think that's about repairing our relationships with each other, doing that historical work and bringing people along as best we can. And also some work of repairing the mess we have made of this planet. Naomi Klein, next week we'll have a full segment with her where she talks about how the pandemic has slowed the speed of life under capitalism, which has created greater empathy and solidarity, which helps explain the unprecedented support for the movement for black lives. Next week with Naomi Klein on Trump Watch. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. It's time to disarm the police. That's what D.D. Guttenplan says. He's editor of The Nation. We reached him today in London. Don Guttenplan, welcome back. Great to be back, John. So you open your piece for The Nation with a list of some of the most notorious cases of black people being killed by cops with guns. Remind us about those. Well, I, I talk about the harrowing video of Rayshard Brooks being shot in the back by the Atlanta police. But, you know, then there's Breonna Taylor, who was shot as she slept in her own bed in Louisville. And in Minnesota, uh, Philando Castile. And in North Charleston, Walter Scott. And I was in Cleveland the week that Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old boy, was shot in the park. The Nation editorial is 650 words. In the longer version of this, I had Michael Stewart, Eleanor Bumpers, names I remembered from New York. This is something that has been going on for generations. Well, Philando Castile is especially 
significant to me. We're approaching the fourth anniversary of his murder. He was shot on July 6th, 2016. Philando Castile and I went to the same high school, St. Paul Central. Just to remind our listeners, he was 37 when he was killed. He had worked for years as a food services supervisor at one of the St. Paul Public Schools. We're told he was very popular among the students. He knew their names. He knew their food allergies. The cop who stopped Philando Castile and his girlfriend and then killed him was tried for manslaughter and found not guilty. You say that for much of American history, the police did not carry guns. When, when did they start? I assumed that the police always had guns. Uh, but when you look into it, the night watchmen who were what they had for police in the original North American colonies uh, were selected from the community. Uh, and they did not carry any weapons. And they went around and said, you know, 12 o'clock and all is well or so forth. Benjamin Franklin's police force that he instituted in Philadelphia were not armed. The Boston police were not armed. In very few of the northern colonies were, uh, in, in none of the northern colonies were the police armed with anything more than a short club. It's important to note that the Charleston slave patrols were always armed uh, and that that's the origin of most southern police forces. They, have, they were slave patrols who were instituted to prevent slave uprisings and to capture and return escaped slaves and to maintain racial subjugation in the South. And essentially, after the Civil War, these forces became the nuclei of the police force in Southern states. So arming the police has always been associated in America with racial subjugation. The other police force who have always been armed are the Texas Rangers, who of course were charged with not only, you know, enforcing the theft of land from Mexico, but also prosecuting uh, genocidal wars against Native Americans. When and why were police, municipal police forces given guns? It was only after the Civil War as police departments in the North increasingly took on the role of strike breakers, because that was one of the, one of the things, you know, Karl Marx called the eight hour law passed by the state of Illinois, the first fruit of the Northern victory of the civil war. After the civil war, there was an incredible upsurge of organizing among labor. Uh, and essentially police forces were enlisted by capital to put down these uprisings. And at that point, they began needing to carry weapons and carrying weapons. Although, again, the New York City police were not issued with weapons until a reform mayor, William Strong, in the 1890s and his reform anti-corruption police commissioner, Theodore Roosevelt, handed out pistols to the NYPD. So you say it's time to disarm the police, but uh, is there any place in the world today where the regular police are not armed? Oh, come on, John. We both know that here in London, the Metropolitan Police famously do not carry guns. Look, I, I, there's a point I want to make, which is that uh, disarming the police and defunding the police are not the same demand, but they are related. Uh, and it seems to me they work in tandem. You know, you have these police forces that show up for demonstrations clad head to toe in body armor 
uh, and with, you know, mace, tear gas, pepper spray, guns, you know, sometimes machine guns, sometimes tanks. They don't want for a nickel, uh, whereas doctors and nurses in municipal hospitals have sometimes had to beg for PPE. So, you know, that's one point, is that the money spent on overarming our police could clearly be better spent elsewhere. Another point is that when you see as we now increasingly do, videos of the way police behave with their guns, it's clear that these people have no business carrying guns and they should be taken away from them. But the London model is relevant because, first of all, London is a big cosmopolitan city, uh, very diverse. Secondly, London in the 70s and 80s had a much bigger terrorism problem than anywhere in the United States, and yet they never felt the need to arm their police. And, uh, and third, even in recent years with the, you know, the rise of other kinds of, of terrorism, after the 7-7 the bombings, for example, here on the, on the underground, they still didn't arm the police because the model is policing by consent. And, and the point of suggesting that we disarm American police is not to say that America and Britain are socially the same, it's to say that policing by consent involves a different mindset on the part of the police. And that if American police went on the job with that mindset, instead of I'm packing heat, I don't need to listen to you, there would be a, a, a de-escalation and a particularly a saving of black lives. Well, your piece at The Nation got about two dozen comments. Uh, let me ask you about some of them. The most common objection was since criminals have guns in America. The police have to have guns. I'm just guessing here, but I imagine you are aware of the fact that criminals in America have guns. Well, let's put it this way. I was robbed at gunpoint in Prospect Heights in Brooklyn in the 1980s. Okay. So, so I'm not only theoretically aware, you know, they, they say that a, a neoconservative is a liberal who's been mugged. Well, I'm, I'm a radical who's been mugged, and I'm still a radical. Okay. Uh, Yes, of course, I'm aware that Americans have guns. In fact, I made a, a radio program for the BBC five years ago called Guns, an American Love Affair, which is exactly about Americans and guns. But here's the point. Guns are not equally distributed, just like money in the United States and other social <laughs> goods. Guns are not equally spread. So, you know, even if you argue that, for example, I don't know, in Texas, where everybody and their mother has a gun, and you're allowed to, to open carry anywhere you want, the police might feel at a disadvantage not having a gun. I think that's not a spurious argument. That's a serious argument. On the other hand, in New York City or Boston, where carrying a gun is illegal and where nobody's supposed to have the gu a gun, only the police and criminals have guns. And if the police didn't have guns as a matter of course, First of all, 98% of the crime they deal with doesn't require a gun. Secondly, if you're someone calling because your neighbor upstairs is screaming because he's, I don't know, going crazy from lockdown, and the police show up and they don't have guns, then you don't have to worry about getting your neighbor killed, particularly if your neighbor is black or Hispanic. The point is you could start with big cities where they already don't have guns, New York, Washington, Boston, and, you know, if the sky fell down, I suppose you could give them their guns back. On the other hand, if you had what happens in London, which is instead of having one cop with a gun show up at any, you know, police call, you get three cops who don't have guns <laughs> showing up, then 
uh, you'll find out that you don't need them. In London, if there's, a, if there's an armed incident, the Metropolitan Police have a SWAT squad or the equivalent, an armed response team who do have guns. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have that. But that's, you know, a very small fraction of, particularly in the case of the NYPD or the Chicago Police Department or the Boston Police Department, a very large police force. And another set of comments on your piece uh, argued that the solution is not to disarm the police, but to retrain them and to eliminate the so-called bad apples. Well, you know, first of all, <laughs> the point about bad apples is that they do spoil the barrel. So, yes. <laughs> you know, eliminating them might be good, but it may be too late for some of that. Retraining, of course, yes, there should be much more emphasis on de-escalation. But, you know, how seriously do you get people to, to take that? I, that's my, my, my point is that the whole mentality is different. And, you know, look, you and I are old enough to remember the Tom Robinson band's great song, Glad to be Gay, which begins, the British police are the best in the world. He's being satirical, and he's absolutely right. Not having a gun doesn't keep you from beating people up or being brutal. I've been kettled by the London Metropolitan Police, and I can tell you it's no fun. What does kettled mean? Kettled means you're part of a demonstration, and you're surrounded by a phalanx of police who won't let you leave and contain you in smaller and smaller areas for hours. And, I, and I've been on the streets in London and, and been charged at by police horses. And that's no fun either. So I'm not saying that London Metropolitan Police are perfect or that they should be the model. I'm just saying that policing is possible in a big city with a terrorist threat without guns. Concluding thoughts here. Have you gotten other responses to this piece other than the ones I've cited from the comments section? Well, you know, a lot of Americans seem to <laughs> like to point out that there are more guns in America than there are people. And, you know, do I think that's a problem? Yes. <laughs> Would I like to see fewer guns <laughs> yes. around? Yes. On the other hand, you know, I, look, I live part of the year in Vermont and uh, Vermont has very lax gun laws. And on the other hand, very low crime and very low murder rates. So I, I, I think that it, there are way too many guns. Nobody really needs handguns. Nobody really needs AK-47s or whatever the equivalents are. But, you know, in a state where there are a lot of hunters, you're going to have a lot of guns, and I'm fine with that. What I, don't, what I think is that you don't want to call the cops because you're locked out of your house and then find out that, that because you happen to be black, they decided they needed to shoot you rather than help you get back in. D.D. Guttenplan, you can read his article, Disarm the Police at thenation.com. Don, thanks for talking with us today. Always a pleasure, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time for our regular feature on Virus Time TV. Talk about what to watch this week. For that, we turn, of course, to Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, and at NPR.org, and she's a top critic at Rotten Tomatoes. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Hi, Ella. 
Hello, how are you, John? I'm pretty good. It's not sunny over at my house yet. What about? I'm sure you're in the deep, deep fog. Yeah, if you're not sunny, we're not sunny because we've always got the marine layer, which is very good for writing, but not for living. <laughs> well, this week you've been watching an animated movie about migrant labor in Brazil. It's called Boy and the World. It's on Netflix. What is it? It's an absolutely beautiful and extremely uh, entertaining and heartbreaking animated fictional movie that is also a trenchant political critique in its own kind. And I, it's been around for a while, as you say, on, on Netflix, but I get the feeling that it hasn't really gotten the kind of play that it deserves because it really is just an extraordinary movie. It's directed by a young Brazilian director whose name, and I apologize to Mr. Abreu for, for probably mangling his name, is Ale Abreu. Who, and it grew out of an animated documentary that he was making about Brazil's very troubled post-colonial history. But this one, um, which is a nominally a fictional piece, although I suspect it draws on a lot of migrant laborers' families' experience, is through the point of view of a little boy who is going in search of his father who had to leave home in search of work. And this is one of millions in, in all over Latin America, not just in Brazil. Now, we know the boy only as a circle, a little circle with two slits for eyes, three goofy hairs, a stripy T-shirt and uh, a pair of shorts. In other words, he's a little animated cartoon of a very simple kind. But by the end of the movie, we are so invested in him as a boy <laughs> who um, makes the journey from what begins as an idyllic country setting where he grew up to the very noisy and, and um, clattering big city in search of his dad. We really take him to our hearts because of the way the movie is made. It's beautifully done both in hand animation and CGI, and you can't tell which is which, which is a, a wonderful thing. With all kinds of uh, inventive flips to it that, uh, that are very meaningful. Uh, for example, the sound, there is some dialogue um, that you can't, you couldn't understand even if you spoke Portuguese because the dialogue is all in backwards Portuguese. <laughs> um, so it serves a, um, very much as a Jacques Tati comedy would be where you can't actually get the, the dialogue. There's also music, Brazilian hip hop. Well, some of it is world music from today, but a sizable proportion of it, I'm glad you brought that up, um, is, uh, comes from protest songs of the 60s and 70s from Latin America. And that is used as a kind of backing for a beautiful choreography in which the cotton stalks that migrant work laborers work on start doing this kind of beautiful dance. The cranes of the you know, predatory oil industry do a different kind of dance that's much more uh, looming and, and harrowing. And the color, there are these beautiful gashes of color that he uses crayons for, for 
just regular children's crayons to show the world from this little boy's point of view. And uh, it's enormously effective. It's very lovely. And emotionally speaking, it's extremely engaging. Um, the ending is both despairing and hopeful. Just go back for a minute to the animation. You know, we live in the world of of the Toy Story sequels, which, you know, have the, are just mind-boggling. Is all of this done with the stick figures and, and the simple images? And what does that look like to the audience, which, you know, now lives in the world of Toy Story? Yeah, well, the little boy is a, is a stick figure, um, but he meets people along the way who protect him. Um, the movie is very much a sort of Marxist populist sensibility. Uh, it emphasizes the solidarity of these classes that protect him and who might also be his grown-up self and then his elderly self returning to a blighted countryside that's been um, destroyed by wildfires and, um, and oil drilling. But some of it is some very clever CG, is the use of very clever CGI grafted onto the hand-drawn figures um, in a way that you can't really tell, tell the difference. But the colors of the, of the film are absolutely gorgeous. And, and what did you think of the end where there's there's uh, some live action that replaces the animation. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up too, uh, because suddenly the movie moves out of animation and you get footage of wildfires burning in the Amazon forest. You get um, footage of uh, soldiers that we thought would never hit this country, but appear to be doing that too, um, who are brutally repressing um, migrant workers. And uh, the, the very moving thing about this film, uh, which I believe was made in 2013 or 14, is that it is alarmingly prescient about what has happened to Brazil today, in particular in regard to deforestation in the Amazon, the, the terrible wildfires that Jair Bolsonaro did nothing about until it was too late and the harm that they did to indigenous people. So it's kind of a poem to migrant la labor with a, a distinctly political edge. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Boy and the World on Netflix. I understand it was nominated for the Oscar for Best Animated Feature. Yes, it was. And uh, it got beat out by Inside Out, which was also a very good film, but um, it doesn't have uh, the, quite the originality. You know, that's a very Disney-fied kind of film. I liked it very much. Uh, but this one is a work of art. And on the subject of the breakdown of Brazilian democracy, there's a documentary playing now on Netflix and called The Edge of Democracy. Tell us about that. Yes, it's a year old, which is certainly new, and it's directed by a young and written and produced and voiceovered by a young woman director named Petra Costa who uh, I moderated a discussion with her for IDA last year. She's extremely articulate and on the subject of what's happened to Brazil. It is in many ways a very sad film. Um, and it, it, it traces the history of the Brazilian Workers' Party under Lula da Silva uh, and uh, his successor, uh, Gilmar Rousseff, Rousseff 
about their rise and fall. He was imprisoned on charges of corruption, which were not entirely unfounded. And Petra Costa, who has connections with his family, her parents were both activists and her grandparents were corporate elites. So she has, it's not just Brazil who's divided, it's her family. Um, She skates rather quickly over the fact that there was corruption up at the top, but she is certainly correct that it was very small by comparison with the kind of endemic corruption um, in Brazil that resulted in the impeachment of uh, Dilma Rousseff and the imprisonment of Lula uh, da Silva for 18 months. He got out eventually after 18 months last year. Um, he is an enormously charismatic figure, a very small man with a very huge influence on his country, who did much to, you know, to lift the working class out of poverty, uh, as did uh, Gilma. She's a former activist during the period of the, after the military coup, who was imprisoned for, and tortured for a long time herself. And this traces the path from the very fragile democracy that that was created in Brazil uh, to the dictatorship that we have today. And there in in the account of the close relationship between corporate elites and the political body, relationship is not that they basically own the political system there. You see waiting in the wings amongst the crowds of right-wingers who uh, mobilized to indict these two, a retired army captain by the name of Jair Bolsonaro, who is, of course, today the, I believe, president of Brazil. Which So the film is about the power struggle between the left and their supporters and the endemic corruption that renders uh, democracy impossible. What it shows, I think is that when you have a situation in any society where the society is divided almost equally in two, 50% right-wing populists and 50% populists, that is a recipe for the demise of, of the democratic system. And as such, that film has a tremendously powerful message for us here in the United States and for numerous European countries, countries in Africa as well. Uh, and so the future of Brazil is extremely unclear, and she is very clear that that applies to many societies, including our own here in the United States. And just one, one footnote, the Edge of Democracy documentary, of course, was finished before the COVID epidemic hit. But let's note that Brazil has confirmed more than 2 million cases of COVID-19 and more than 80,000 deaths. Yeah. Its mortality rate is one of the highest in the world. It's in the President Jair Bolsonaro Uh, He's one of these people who, like Trump, minimize the threat of the virus. It's kind of typical of the authoritarian leaders everywhere, uh, everywhere, you know, in India, in Russia, and so on. And now Bolsonaro has COVID-19. He's tested positive. He's sick. He's been treated. That is the footnote to this sort of the aftermath of, of this film. Finally, we want to talk about Flannery. It's a new documentary about the Southern writer Flannery O'Connor. It's playing now on pay-per-view here in L.A. You find it at lemily.com. 
The New Yorker recently, just last month, ran a piece headlined, How Racist Was Flannery O'Connor? Is that actually taken up in this documentary? It is taken up. I, I don't want to dwell on it too much because it's not the strong part of the movie. They take it up twice. One is, was she a racist in her writing? And the answer is a categorical no, because what she's, what Flannery O'Connor's great gift was her ear for Southern speech. And what she's doing here is uh, reporting Southern speech. So for people who have accused her work of racism, I think that they are misunderstanding. Her racism in real life, the movie somewhat fudges. And since I don't know the answer to that, uh, you don't really get a good answer to it. Nevertheless, it's a pretty wonderful movie about writing because it's, they got one of the directors, Mark Bosco, is directed by Elizabeth Kaufman and Mark Bosco, who's a Jesuit priest, Mm. has devoted himself to this. Um, and they had discovered some old footage of a very long interview uh, that the interview shy Flannery O'Connor did. And there are marvelous insights there about what informs her writing. For example, um, she, her parents were uh, very different influences on her. Her father was very loving, um, wanted to encourage her work, really encouraged her to speak in her own voice. Her mother wanted her to be a Southern belle, which if you know anything about Flannery O'Connor, <laughs> that's not going to fly. <laughs> um, and she also had lupus, of which her father died when she was 15, which she regarded as an asset to her writing because she had no company while she was uh, living on a farm while she was ill. Um, but it also gave her an attraction, as she put it, to freaks and misfits, one of whom appears in her most famous story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. And there are clips of the John Huston's movie of Wise Blood also, which are, are very wonderful. Um, she had a tremendous ear for uh, the speech uh, of her place. And uh, the the movie has some animated sequences uh, that they use to sort of recover certain periods of her life and wonderful testimonies on the whole from uh, the best of them being from Hilton Owls, who's an, a black writer who writes for The New Yorker, who really rebuts uh, a lot of the um, accusations of racism and highlights what was so wonderful about her writing. So I do recommend uh, this documentary highly. We've been talking about two shows on Netflix, Boy and the World, the animated movie about migrant labor in Brazil, and The Edge of Democracy, a a documentary about the rise of the right to power in Brazil, plus the new documentary, Flannery, about Flannery O'Connor. It's playing now on pay-per-view at lemily.com. We've been speaking with Ella Taylor. Ella, always great to have you on the show. Great to be here, and may the sun come out. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. 
Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.